This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome to the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the enduring Simon Belanger, because my guy, we have passed 300 episodes yeah. <laughs> on this show. We, we may have that forgotten to, to talk about it on the 300th episode. <laughs> the listeners should know we recorded 300 and didn't realize until after. So this is us celebrating it together and with you. Uh, 300 episodes is no small feat. And, and thank you for thank you for being uh, so consistent with, with me and, and uh, putting up with my hot takes. And I yeah. uh, appreciate it. Putting up with me uh, butchering the occasional uh, English word with my French accent, <laughs> but uh, we do appreciate the support. It's been uh, pretty crazy, 300 episodes. That is nuts. All right, today we, you got some fire today, actually. Uh, I was like doing my notes and I was looking what you were doing. It's uh, game theory. That it just sounds cool. Like you know, it just sounds good. Like something <laughs> you I've, sounds yeah. smarter when you use words like game theory. I've been meaning to do that for a while, but sometimes I don't know if you. It's the same for you. I'll just kind of be doing something, or I listen to to another podcast, or listening to an audiobook, and then an idea comes up, and I'm like, oh shit, I have to write it down because I know if not, I'm just gonna forget about it. And uh, yeah, that was one of those. Yeah. There are certain ideas that come to mind, and you're right. They come, they they come at the weirdest time. You'll be like middle of a bench press set, and you're like, "Wow, let's talk about game theory on the pod." Like, like you like finish your set. You're like, "I really need to write that down, or else it'll never make it onto the pod." Before that, you know, even more exciting than 300 episodes, I became a real adult last night and got myself a Costco executive membership. Oh. So. Uh, how proud of, of me are you? Um, I'm pretty, I'm proud. You'll see that now your blood pressure will go up every time you go to Costco. <laughs> and then you'll be happy once you leave because you'll have saved a lot of money. Um, go with a list because if not, it, it's easy to buy stuff you don't really need. And uh, don't come to the Costco on Merivale Road in Ottawa because the ceiling caved in last week when we had some no, torrential really? downpours oh yeah i saw some footage <laughs> that there's like a foot of water in the costco so i think it's going to be closed for for a little bit which is pretty bad because oh, yeah. we don't have that many costcos in ottawa i think we have like five maybe in the region and they're always packed so you can imagine if you remove one of them it's going to be even worse you got to embrace the chaos uh, because that place is fully, fully chaos. But you know what? You're right. You got to have like a list because like I needed, I needed floss, right? <laughs> yesterday. I, like I need like floss and like deodorant and you're walking by the aisle and you're like, do you need floss or you, do you need 12 packages of floss? Like you, <laughs> like you have to like really ask yourself, what do you want here? Do you want 12 or do you just need some floss? I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't go bad. So I think those, it's pretty good. It's just you have to be careful on the stuff that's perishable because then, right. yeah, then it might not be such a good deal if you're throwing out half of it. Yeah, yeah that's true. But I mean, I live in, me and my girlfriend live in a, you know, apartment, right? So you can't just be, 
There's no room for 12 boxes of floss. Quick question of the day. Uh, let's, start the, let's start the show with a quick question of the day. Uh, off the cuff. Is there a position size too large or too small, Simone? You want to take this one first? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. In terms of too small, I've been guilty of that at times in terms of my total portfolio, although sometimes I do look at it from like a, just a TFSA angle, RSP angle, and then so, but overall portfolio, I've been guilty of that because if you have too small of a position, I mean, you really have to have amazing returns for it to, to just move the needle. And we talk about Warren Buffett a lot, but there's a reason why Berkshire you know, doesn't do these like $10 million deals or $50 million deals. It's usually hundreds of millions or if not billion, it's because they just doesn't move the needle for them. Like they'd have to do so many deals uh, to make that worthwhile. In terms of the larger position, I mean, we've talked about allocation before. Allocation is one of the best tool you can to mitigate risk in your portfolio. So clearly, I think for the most part, I would say like, Anything above 10% is starting to be a pretty large allocation. But if you're a self-directed investor, the beauty of that is you can really have your winners really let them run. And the advantage that that's an advantage you have over professional fund manager, professional money managers, but at the same time, it does increase the risk, right? If you go over 10% for one position, no matter how good the business is, you know, there is always a, a small, no matter how small of a risk, there is always a risk that, you know, there could be a significant change in that business, no matter how good the business is. And if it's a large allocation, then you're, you're really risking taking a big hit. So, you know, not to give you a non-answer, but this is usually the things I, I will consider. Um, you just have to be comfortable with that risk, understand it, um, and just be comfortable with the downside. And obviously, we talk about the sleep test a, a lot. If an allocation or position is just too big where it's stressing you out all the time, um, that's probably the sign you need that you need to trim down that position. I like the answer. I love it. And you're right. I mean, there the non-answer is the correct answer because it entirely matters on you, the person, you, the investor, your tolerance, your ability to withstand volatility, and your willingness to understand a lot of companies will kind of dictate how many positions you should have or if you should just be owning the index and go to the beach because I think that that's a totally fair strategy as well. Um so the the too small, I, I actually have a hot I have a hot take on. So I don't really have an answer on the too large because it really matters <laughs> up to you. But the too small, I actually do have a stance on this, and I do think that there is too small. There is a real issue, and and I'll I guess I'll frame this answer with we're talking about the do it yourself investor. Because if we're talking about a portfolio manager that has fifty analysts that can cover, you know, each analyst can just cover ten names or five names, then then they're good. They kind of have that coverage. But if you're the do-it-yourself investor and you're getting into like forty individual positions, let's say they're equal weighted. I know they won't be, but you're gonna have some like really like sub sub half a percent, sub quarter of a percent positions. And you have to match your level of conviction 
with a position size. And you cannot borrow that conviction from anyone else except yourself. You have to do your own work here. And so if you're not really have a ton of conviction in the, in the position, is there higher conviction positions that you own and understand really well? Because when we're talking about like 40, 50, I see these all the time, right? Individual investor portfolios that have like 60 stocks. Oh yeah. I think that, I think that that's, I think that that, I personally do have a stance on that. I think that's crazy. I think that's madness. And then is there a position size too large? Look at Nick Sleep of the Nomad Investment Partnership. He owns three stocks. He's done insanely well. It's like 57% Amazon, 25% Costco. And what's the other one? Nomad Nick Sleep. Oh gosh, I'm forgetting the other. uh, It doesn't matter. It's like, uh, oh, and Berkshire, of course. It's like 25% Berkshire, 25% Costco, and about 50% Amazon, roughly. And so that's that's the portfolio. Obviously, extreme conviction in just three mega cap stocks. And he has the conviction and willingness to hold them. Do you? That, that portfolio, I think, is brilliant. It's just three really high quality businesses. Is that portfolio match a lot of people? No, like hardly anyone. Uh, and that's why the position size too large is more nuanced in my view. Yeah, no, I think that's good. Um, I mean, even I was thinking and I looked it up while you were talking. Um, even I don't, have you ever heard of Bill Miller? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's got like it's even more extreme. I know a lot of people like when it comes to Bitcoin, I know it's like, like Amazon and Bitcoin. Yeah, right? it's like 50 50. Like, so <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's the last I maybe it's changed. I know that was in 2022, but I know a lot of people might find that crazy. I mean, I think our audience in terms of Bitcoin is very polarized. So we have people that uh, I've had people like say, you should talk about it more. And I have had people say like, oh, you know, I don't really like Bitcoin. It's fine for you to talk once in a while. And that's about it. But uh, that just goes to show that for a lot of people, that would be crazy to have 50-50 right there. But um, I mean, I love how he, he, you know, these guys came from such value backgrounds too. Yeah. And just kind of broke the rules a little bit. Um and did so well. Like, ah, God, this guy's, I mean, look at the performance on Amazon and Bitcoin for the past yeah, five years. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I'm a bit like, obviously, I, I'm, you know, I have strong conviction in Bitcoin and that, that would be too much for me, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at this. You cannot borrow conviction. Mm. And, you know what? You can borrow conviction. It's just a good way to lose money. Yeah, exactly. You can borrow conviction and the stock faces a 25, 30, 40% drawdown and you do what? What's your plan of action? Because you haven't built that conviction. You built it off someone else's conviction uh, and that's a sure way to lose money. Well put. So, all right, let's get through it. I'm seeing something about prisoners and game theory, and I am so intrigued. Yeah, so game theory and investing. So I'll just go over what game theory is. So according to Investopedia, game theory is a theoretical framework for conceiving social situations amongst competing players. I actually learned about game theory years ago, maybe like 15, 20 years ago with poker. 
because it's widely used in poker uh, just because if anyone's played poker a little bit there's a mix obviously of luck but also skills and it's very easy there's a term that people would say all the time I'm sure they still do you kind of level yourself into doing a move so you say oh you know the player I'm playing against he must be thinking I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this instead but what if he thinks I'm gonna do that and then you know you shift your there's always this kind of reasoning behind it Now, the framework, in some respect, game theory is the science of strategy, or at least the optimal decision-making of independent and competing actors in a strategic setting. So essentially, by using game theory, you're trying to make the best decision for yourself by considering how your decision could be impacted by what the actions of other players or actors or whatever you call them. And that can impact your outcome and vice versa. The Prisoner's Dilemma is a classic example. You'll see this time and time again if you Google game theory. So you have two parties that are accused of the same crime. So let's just take Brayden and I. We're accused of the same crime, but we're not in contact with each other. So we're in separate cells and were being interrogated separately and in terms that's that's episode 300 coming out there yeah yeah interrogated (laughs) interrogated exactly (laughs) and each party can either remain silent or plead not guilty or confess which is plead guilty and implicate the other party so you have various outcome so if each party remains silent each so let's say Brayden and I remain silent we'll each year get two years of prison but if Brayden confesses and I remain silent Brayden gets one year and I get eight years and then if we both confess we get five years each and obviously if I confess but Brayden stays silent then it's reverse I get one year then you get eight years and that's where that's an easy example of game theory because you have to try and think what the other person will do and then try to make the best action you can based on that because clearly you know there are some different outcomes that you know vary very widely and if you look at it it's probably the most optimal play is to both remain silent but you have no way of knowing what the other person uh, will do and another example to understand this is how companies price their products and i think apple is actually a really good example if you take the iphone here so just to give a little bit of history the first iPhone, I don't know if you remember that. You were probably pretty young, but uh, do you know? Without, oh, I remember it very You remember very what clearly. year came out without uh, looking oh, at the notes? <laughs> oh, five? Oh, six, pretty close, oh, 2007. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. 2007. I'm, thinking I, I'm still thinking an iPod. Okay, case. that's fair. Yeah, yeah. And the first iPhone came out in 2007, and it was really a premium product. So it wasn't until 2013 that Apple came out with a less expensive version of the iPhone with the iPhone 5C. But even then, it wasn't all that cheap with the suggested retail price of US $549 at the time. It wasn't until 2016 that Apple launched a truly affordable version with the iPhone SE, which retailed at just $399 US dollars. So pretty, you know, especially if you factor in inflation and all that, you know, pretty affordable phone, especially if you start factoring in the discounts that you can have with various carrier. 
Now, by the time Apple came out with a cheaper version of the iPhone, there were already a lot, there were tons of low-cost alternatives with Android that had been available for years. Now, the, this is where game theory comes in. There are probably, like, I'll go over some of the consideration that Apple was probably looking at when they decided to come out with an affordable version of the iPhone or debating whether it was a good idea or not. And obviously, this is simplified. I'm sure they did some market research and, you know, they thought about this and look at all the data. But the first one would be if we have a cheaper iPhone available in our lineup, will it impact the sales of our more premium, higher margin product? I think that's a pretty reasonable question to ask. Right. Like, will it cannibalize the regular iPhone. Yeah, exactly. Which are typically, you know, the more expensive models, typically they'll make more profits on them too. So you have to keep that in mind. The second point here, will our iPhone revenues be higher or lower as a whole if we release a more affordable version? The third one, which obviously can impact the stock price or ability to raise capital and so on. There's all these different, you know, implications that you have to consider. Third, if we don't have a cheaper version, will we lose customers to Android rivals? Will rivals aggressively reduce their price to get our customers? So that's another thing they have to consider. Four, will having a cheaper version of impact Apple's brand negatively in the eyes of their cons- their customers? Because, you know, Apple has a quite still today as a pretty premium brand. I mean, just thinking about the stores, right? You go into an Apple store, I mean, you almost feel compelled to spend. That's how like, good their stores are. But that's something, you know, they would have considered because you don't want to tarnish a brand that's already well regarded. Five, does having more customer in our ecosystem positively or negatively impact our other segments such as services? And how will investors react if we have a cheaper phone? What will be the impact on our stock? So these are all questions, you know, that there are other parties involved. And Apple has to, using game theory, you can try and make assumptions and try to make some, you know, educated guesses, obviously using data. But that's a way, a framework of looking at a potential decision and what the impact it will have. Yeah, especially when competitors you don't know their their pricing plans, right? Like, And so you're kind of completely in the dark on that as well to go back to your, you know, confess or remain silent uh, prisoner's dilemma. Uh, yeah, these are a good long list of questions. And this is just like a long list of questions that I face myself as a business owner, like constantly. Like this is basically my job to try to weigh out the, 10 things and do my best. Of course, you can never know the future, right? So you're just trying to do the right thing enough times for the for the best outcome that you can possibly control, right? Because so much of it is out of your control. Yeah, exactly. And even when we look at investing, I think an, an interesting one to look at was just our, you know, the meme stocks, right? I think recently the meme stock picked back up with, I think, Tupperware. Did you see that? 
Oh yeah, that yeah. one comes and goes sometimes. <laughs> but in the meme in the meme world. Yeah, if we think back about GameStop, for example, when it happened, so you have kinda you know, you can take two big actors if you'd like, and you'll see there's kind of subgroup as well. So you have the retail traders through uh, Reddit and Wall Street bets. So their actions as a collective were driving the price of the stock up. But once the price was up, each individual trader, so they're kind of separate actors here had a decision to make do you take profits now or keep going if you take profits now you lock in those profits but if you keep going you may make more however other traders may decide to sell and if we don't stick together then it could impact the stock price negatively and then on the other side of the trade you have the short so their decisions are dependent on how leveraged they are and what they think retail traders will do obviously if they think the traders will hold on then selling sooner rather than later is probably the best outcome and if they don't then holding on is probably the best outcome here because they think retail traders will falter and then the price will come back down and then their shorts will either lose less money or become profitable so it's there's just so many different ways you can apply game theory you know this is just to sum it up if you there's books that go over it um it's still an evolving science i think it's been out for since the 1950s if I remember correctly, the uh, game theory. And it's something, at least from a poker background, there it's always in the back of my mind a little bit. I, I thought it would just be uh, interesting to talk about it and uh, make sense of it. Because if you listen to a lot of people who invest, uh, macro, whatever it is, um, you will hear that term come up, you know, every now and then. It's one of those like very classic subjects that every like first year business student has to learn about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it's like what grade six math and trigonometry is to first year business students in game theory. Like it's just something that you have to learn, and then everyone forgets what it is. <laughs> you know, but uh, you know it's fascinating, and it's one of those things where people are actively participating in in it every single day with decision making, whether they whether they know it or not. No. Well put. No, exactly. I think it's, uh, I mean, it's a framework to kind of put it down, but obviously, just like you said, I think a lot of people use it without knowing it. Yeah, it's like the basics of decision making is like kind of all those things you laid out there with the iPhone example. Mm -hmm. What was your first iPhone? What, do you remember the model? I think it was five. Yeah, because I had Android five? for a bit. Um, I was in Taiwan when it came out in 2007. Uh, and it was pretty expensive. I got a fancy kind of phone from Taiwan that was a competitor with Apple back then. Uh, okay. But um, uh, I remember going on a trip and I was having some issues with my Android and I came back. I was like, screw it. I'm going and just getting an <laughs> iPhone. And I've not looked back since. I think I've had it probably 10 years now. Yeah, that would make yeah. sense. The five. Yeah. Mine was the iPhone 3GS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the iPhone 3GS. Did it come? I guess it was the follow-on on the 3. Like, yeah. I don't really well, there remember. was the iPhone. Then there was the iPhone 3G. And I think the 3GS after that. 3GS. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I had that one. And then I've had a lot of iPhones. I was bad uh, with breaking phones for a good... <laughs> A good chunk of my uh, my days early with the iPhones, but you're right. You know, 
get locked in. Yeah. And that services segment, uh, if they did that game theory, it panned out pretty well for them because it's one yeah. of the the brightest spots in their in their earnings, at least in the last couple of years, for sure. Most profitable company in the world. They must be doing something right. All right. Shocking stats of underperformance is my segment. Uh, every year, S&P does you know, state of active management and how it compares to passive management. And passive management just means like, you know, owning the S&P 500 and going to the beach for the rest of the year, which is a fantastic, tremendous strategy for a lot of individual people, uh, individual investors. And so year to date, uh, according to the data, they're at uh, 51% of active managers have underperformed the S&P. So it's very like, you know, 50-50 if you've underperformed or outperformed. But that is not the norm. And it's it's not the full year yet. So I'm sure it'll keep skewing uh, from the average. But 2021, 85% of large cap domestic equity funds underperformed. 60 in 2020, 71 in 2019, mid 60s all through the previous four ish years. 87% in 2014. And so, very, very infrequently, there are years where active managers of large cap domestic equity funds outperform the S&P 500. And, and many people kind of know these stats. I'm going to go on here now for Canada because they do, they do data based on each region. So I was just talking about the S&P 500. How about Canadian equity funds that outperform, or I guess in this case, underperform uh, the TSX composite, the S&P TSX composite? You were just sharing your your thing for the beautiful people. Yeah, on, yeah uh, so they were TCI. able to see it. And probably just a quick note is that it was as of June 30th, 2022. So the year to date is for last oh, year. okay. Yeah. Year to date was for last yeah. year. Okay, well. But still, I we think go. very here, here, valid, very interesting data nonetheless. Yeah, here's some data for Canada. So I got 10 years, five years, three years, and one year. So let's go one year and then we'll work backwards. So... In the past year, 51.9% of Canadian funds underperformed the S&P TSX composite. So these are Canadian equity funds. So they're, they're investing in Canadian stocks and they're being benchmarked to just Canadian stocks. So it's the correct benchmark. So 51.9% underperformed in one year. You'll see as we go further and further out the time period, we get more uh, clear underperformance. Three years, 83.8% underperformed the S&P TSX composite. Five years, you have 93%. And then 10 years, 84%. So very fascinating. How, look how big. Yeah, five, five and 10. So it, it reverts the trend a little bit. Yeah. It, it reverts the trend a bit. So on a long, on a long view on 10 years, Roughly only 15% of Canadian equity funds outperformed their benchmark of the TSX composite. So very shocking kind of stats of underperformance. You and I have been good enough investors and I would say have the right behavioral psychology to see some pretty wonderful outperformance during these timeframes. But uh, it's a reminder that investing is hard and professional investors 
often have very difficult incentive structures to perform well. They have to trade a lot. They're answering to clients. They're focused on short-term objectives. And a lot of investors like you and I and many of the people listening to this podcast don't have those same constraints and arbitrary demands to meet that can make beating the market an incredibly hard feat. Just look at the data, right? Like this isn't just me making it up. That The data shows what the data shows. Um, and so it's a reminder that investing is hard, but it's also a reminder to don't feel like as the little guy, if you are, or maybe you're very wealthy managing your own money, that you are at a disadvantage because it's just not true. I don't believe that's true at all, especially with the tools available now. Like you can use Stratosphere, which is a professional equity research terminal for 40 bucks a month. A Bloomberg terminal is 25 grand a year. Uh, and so the playing field has has massively leveled there as well in terms of the data availability and the tools that are available. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think obviously, I think there's some there's obviously some really good fund managers out there that are able to beat the market. I mean, that 15% that beats it over 10 years is impressive, um, but it's also just 15%. And I mean, the biggest thing they've had going against them, in my opinion, is um, I'd be interested in seeing the amount of managers that would beat the index if they didn't have the fees or if the fees were equal to right. the you know index ETF version of you know, what they're comparing the benchmark. Exactly. So I'd be very interested because it's probably closer to 50-50 across the board or something like that. I I don't know. I'm just speculating, but I'd love to see that data because a lot of the underperformance is the fees. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good point, right? Because I'm assuming that's what this data is including, right? They're trying to sell their story on why passive's great. Um, I would love to see this data, and maybe it exists somewhere. It must. I'd love to know yeah. if it exists somewhere. Can't be the first no, ones wait. to have thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's not where I was going with this. I'd love to see the data on the difference in performance of these fund managers and how high their portfolio turnover is. Because all of the great equity investors I know, and I follow their 13Fs, and they've had tremendous performance has been very, very low portfolio turnover because they've bought winners and held them. That's how you outperform. Like, break it down to its very basic form of outperforming the market. You hold stocks in aggregate that do better than the average. And if you're in and out of stuff, that becomes a lot harder. All the great investors in the 13Fs that I know have massively outperformed the market on a long time horizon have bought right and held tight. That's the only, like, I don't see another way to have massive outperformance unless you are some expert level trader. I think that the easy way and the most accessible way here is to buy, buy right and sit tight. Yeah, I mean, that's what we do for the most part. I think, you know, I... At the end of the day, I think as a general philosophy, at least for me, and I think you're like that too, we try and buy and hold businesses for the long term. Uh, You know, I think it's fine to, at least for me, I'm still leaving myself some opportunities if I see that something is, 
you know, in value territory and it's something like a, a bit more of a turnaround play that might be a bit more short, medium term. Um, that's fine too, but definitely the, let's say the foundation of my investing strategy is just to buy and hold some really good companies. Okay, so now we'll move on to my next segment here. I decided to listen to the audiobook because uh, it's much easier for me to listen to audiobooks with a baby, with a podcast, everything going on. Um, as a new father, you know, the mom does a lot of the work. I try to help as much as I can. But one of the ways that I help is I cook clean dishes, clean the house and things like that. And, you know, it's much easier to listen to a book than try to read it while you're doing those things. <laughs> uh, what, you don't you don't have <laughs> the book in one hand and the, the dishes in the other the hand? The knife in the other hand trying to... Yeah, 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 yeah. Lose a finger. Chopping onions yeah, exactly. one hand, yeah, yeah. Step it up, dude. I, I, there's always room for improvement. <laughs> yeah, so for those not uh, aware, so Easy Money was written by uh, Ben McKenzie, and I'm, I'm sorry, there's a, you know, he also did it with a co-author. Maybe you can look that up uh, with me. Um, so Ben McKenzie is a star in the OC and Gotham. So if people are not familiar with him, just Google his uh, his name. You'll probably recognize his face, even though you might not necessarily be familiar with those shows. And so I tried to like I knew this book because I had seen some of his interviews that he was very anti-crypto. I think I'm not mincing any words here when I say that, but. You know, everyone knows I've talked about it before. It has strong conviction in Bitcoin. But I also like to look at other points of view because I try to look as, you know, have a point of view that's nuanced and objective as much as possible. So I decided to go ahead. That's actually, a, dude, that's actually quite commendable because I know you're a, a Bitcoin bull. And you're like, let's read this really bearish review of Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's commendable. Uh, before, before we get into this. Yeah. Who hurt Ben McKenzie? Why is he writing this book? <laughs> like, what? How did he get into yeah. this? Like, I just remember him yeah, from so, Ryan on the OC yeah. breaking Marissa's heart uh, back in you know high school. Yeah. So the reason he goes over the reason because he got introduced by a friend and he ended up losing some money, but nothing crazy uh, he's, that he said he couldn't afford. But he got concerned starting researching it because he, which he states multiple times in his books and in an interview that he had that economics degree that he did before actor being an actor he just had to let you know yeah that. he just like says it and almost like it becomes an eye roll almost um yes there you go ben mckenzie so people will probably recommend. can you see what i'm saying yeah ben mckenzie needs a hug the oc star crypto book is an <laughs> ill-informed flop Ben McKenzie needs a hug. That is a hilarious. I think I don't. Title. I mean, I think he's done pretty well with the book. And yeah, it's. I think it's uh, Silverman, the the other person that uh, did it with him, who uh, is a reporter. So, um, and I, I do apologize for the first name, but regardless. So, I think. I mean, I disagree with that headline. I'll be honest. Like, there was definitely some good in that book, and I'll I'll, I'll talk about the good and the the not so good and the bad. But I think he. I think he comes from a good place. I think I'll give him that. I think he did that book because he saw like all the speculation happening in the crypto space. Tons of scams, those shit coins that were essentially just insiders cashing out on retail investors. Right. All the frauds, uh, you know, FTX with Sam Bankman Free, who, by the way, is back in jail. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I did. I did see that. <laughs> For witness yeah. tampering, but uh, we'll talk about that another time. Um, oh, I'm shocked. Yeah. I'm shocked. 
fact that this this biggest fraud guy since uh you know Bernie yeah. Madoff is 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 tampering with witnesses. Yeah. Color me surprised. No, but you know, he, I I think you know, there was a lot of fraud, a lot of bad things happening. It was, for the most part, unregulated. So these are things to expect. And a lot of people got in trying to make a, a quick buck and definitely got heard. And I mean, I'm actually happy for us because we, you know, we got sponsored by ShakePay. But, you know, I had been using ShakePay for years before they sponsored us on the podcast. And, you know, from what I can tell, obviously, we didn't have access to their financials, but they're still operating today. ShakePay only has ethereum and bitcoin they never got into all this like kind of shit coin trying to have everything listed um and obviously it shows that there are some good actors in this space but not so good ones like we saw with celsius ftx and without going all over uh, the name so the good of the book so first of all i have to give it to ben he actually narrates the book which is quite oh, rare. Dope. So if you've listened to audiobooks before, very rare. Sometimes the author will have like a one chapter and then leave it to a narrator, but he actually narrates. He's got a good book. voice too. I mean, he's an actor. He's a yeah. He's a hunk of a man and he's an actor, so I'm sure he's got a good voice for it. Which I think was great because it also it really conveys the emotion because there's so much a narrator can do, right? If you're Reading yeah. out your own book, clearly you'll be able to convey the emotion, the tone that you really want your audience to know. And I thought that was actually a really good part of the book. He also talked about his struggles with depression, which I think is important because especially for men, we're still seeing a lot of men having you know, trouble talking about it or seeking help because of thinking they're weak. So he does talk that he struggled with that. It gives a really good overview of all the frauds and scams that happened during the bull market in 2020 and 2022. I found some sections where he recounts his interviews and encounters with SBF, but Alex Mashinsky, which is the uh, former CEO of Celsius, which is he's a piece of work, uh, to say the least. If you've ever seen some <laughs> videos of him, like I knew that before the book, but I thought, you know, he really did a good job of portraying that. He just he shows how crypto was the wild, wild west and how it wrecked thousands, if not millions of re retail traders who bought the Kool-Aid. Obviously, we probably remember that Matt Damon commercial with fortune favors the braves or fortune yeah. favors the was brave. it like crypto.com yeah. i think it was crypto.com yeah. i think oh man yeah. that was i remember seeing the it peak of the yeah. the peak of the grift yeah and that's one thing and i'll talk about it a bit in the in the not so good is remember that super bowl i think it was was it 2022 yeah so coming off of 2021 where every other ad was either a online broker or a crypto ad you remember yep. that? Yeah. So that was yep. kind of the the peak. And um, I obviously- It was just an, an, a giant era of risk on. Exactly. Gambling ads. That's it. And like, like sports gambling ads and crypto gambling ads. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. Um, and he has some really, some heart, gut wrenching stories, uh, including one where a grandfather got scammed out of his life saving and home equity and eventually took his own life because of it. So, I mean, he does oh, put kind of, yeah, like a personal, and I'm sure it's not the it's only terrible. story of that kind where people got scammed. Um, they put their life savings. I've heard of that app with Terra Luna in Korea where you had people put their life savings so they could get yield in that um, algorithmic stable coin and then ended up losing everything. So it does 
kind of bring that to uh, you know to the forefront and I think it is important and on a few occasions he does take the time to point out that our current financial system is not perfect and I think one of his main point is to say that we're replacing it with something that's also not great so I think he's saying that the financial system disadvantages a lot of people but crypto is not the solution that's his main message now the not so good or the bad whatever you want to put it he doesn't even attempt to give the other side of the argument in a lot of the book. Sometimes he'll mention it, but very like high level. Um, there's a few possible explanations for that. Either he did it on purpose because he clearly doesn't like anything related to crypto, uh, lack of understanding for certain subjects, lack of research, or unwilling to research counter arguments. I'm not sure which one it is. I'm just trying to guess. I mean, I do think his intentions were good, uh, but an, an example of that is he compares Visa and MasterCard's speed of transaction to Bitcoin. And I think he, he took Visa, but I don't exactly remember what it's one of the big two uh, payment processors. And he's absolutely right. Visa transaction capacity is much, much greater than Bitcoin. But what he also fails to mention is that Bitcoin settles uh, the transaction very rapidly. Usually within an hour, the transaction is completely settled. Whereas a transaction done on the Visa network, on the other end, does not settle uh, right away. And it will be not settled by Visa, but by the different financial institution. And can take up to two to three days, sometimes even more, to settle the transaction. So you're not literally, you know, comparing apples to apples here. Or at least, you know, if you are comparing it, at least provide these nuances, which he didn't. And he also doesn't talk about the Lightning Network, which is a second layer on top of Bitcoin that has much greater speeds of transaction than Visa, uh, which, you know, it's fine. You can criticize that all you want. That's fine. But at least mention it. Uh, that's where I, I took some issues with it. Um, he only provides examples of the bad actor in the space, which, of course, was rampant during the crypto bull market. Um, I'm sure there's still some bad actors. There's just so many good examples. Exactly. Evolved. Like, mm -hmm. the, like I, I, I'm not going to. I haven't read the book yet, so I don't, yeah. I don't really know. But I... It's easy. I'm with him on calling out the absolute garbage that this space had uh, and still does have mm -hmm. because it's like, yeah, you, you can't just categorize it all as, as all garbage, but there was a lot of it. Oh, so yeah, definitely. I, I, and yeah. I totally agree with that. And that's completely fair. But all, just at least trying to make an attempt to, you know, provide a balanced view um, and one of the example that comes to mind he never talked about circle and who issues usdc and has been following us regulations I, circle even caught up in the whole svb thing because they had deposits backing their stable coin <laughs> with svb and they were lucky that uh, they were essentially svb got depositors got bailed out by the u.s government because they would have taken a hit but he focuses on tether which has had you know to his credit a lot of shady things happen but he doesn't even take the time to uh, talk about usdc that's another example here he also doesn't talk about like the countless examples that i've seen of people using bitcoin 
as a store of value and being able to flee oppression in countries like we saw with Ukraine where, you know, banks were essentially like people weren't able to take any money out of banks and then were able to get away from Ukraine with essentially just a USB stick with their Bitcoin information on it and were able to bring that to another country and have some money with them to actually spend, convert Bitcoin to the local currency. So he doesn't talk about that. He also doesn't talk about countries that have hyperinflation where people are using either U.S. stablecoins or Bitcoin to have a store of value because even how, however volatile Bitcoin is, it's still a better store of value than their currency. And, but he does go at length to talk about El Salvador and Nayib Bukele, which, you know, I think there's a lot of valid things that he said. But to say that the it's a failed experiment after a couple of years, which he does say in the book, I think you have to give El Salvador a bit more time towards that. But I agree with him that Nayib Bukele, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, shows that he's borderline a dictator if he's not a dictator um, in terms of the way that he acts. Um, so, you know, he, the credit goes to him for that. But at least trying to counterbalance that, um, not even looking at, you know, interviewing or talking to people like Alex Gladstein, who is a big human rights proponent with a Bitcoin lens and has done a lot of work. So it's just uh, that's what really rubbed me the wrong way. And at the end where, you know, people who've listened to podcasts a lot, he starts talking about gambling, comparing that with crypto. And I think he has a point, but he's really not well informed in terms of comparing online poker and crypto. Because he goes into a whole thing about how online poker was operating illegally in the U.S. and then essentially got shut down with the Department of Justice. It was actually more of a gray area and the Department of Justice used the rails to shut down some sites. And, you know, to his credit, there was definitely some fraud going on, but there was a lot of these uh, online poker sites that were also operating in jurisdictions that, you know, it was kind of a gray area because there was nowhere to operate legally. And now you've seen these online poker sites. Now they are legalized in most of, I think, all of Canada, uh, in most U.S. states as well. So you see the evolution of that. But, I mean, I got money frozen for several years uh, close to $3,000, if I remember correctly, U.S. on full tilt poker when the uh, the Department of Justice in the U.S. stepped in. I eventually got it back, but it took, I think, three or four years, if not more. And at the time, it was a decent chunk of money for me. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty well informed of what happened. So he just kind of picks and chooses and tries to compare that to crypto and how they were both the wild wild west obviously uses the example of ultimate bet which was using uh, god mode to look at other players card so the administrators were able to see other players cards and then play against the players and make some money so um Obviously not great, but he, he definitely tries to use that to compare the crypto narrative. And I think that could have been done a bit better and more research on that point, too. Overall, I mean, I think it's a good account of what has gone wrong in crypto and the rampant fraud, fraud and speculation that happened the last few years. Um, you know, if you don't like crypto, you'll probably like this book. If you want a... <laughs> 
kind of a balanced view on the subject. You probably won't like it because he definitely, you know, you can tell he has one angle and one, you know, narrative, and that's really what he's following. Uh, but I still figured I'd give it a fair shot, and I think I was pretty reasonable in my view. There's definitely some good things about the book, uh, but it's definitely not what you should listen to or read if you're looking for a balanced view on the space and the pros and the cons, because that's not it. Uh, if you read this book and take it at, at his word, uh, you know, crypto is the next devil, basically. It's the devil. Yeah. It's the devil. <laughs> my only uh, thought here is I can probably agree with a good chunk of the book because I I have a deep uh, disdain for scammers and uh, crypto. Oh yeah. In 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 um in air quotes crypto, right? But I also love Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and I don't even consider them the same things. And I, and I know and I know I'm not alone there. Um, but the old crypto thing, all these random oh, yeah. useless projects, entrepreneurs trying to solve problems that don't exist. Dude, I, I'm so out on like 99.9% of it. So I, I might actually like, I might be, I might like 99% of the book. Um, but yeah, to, to, to lump it all in one, I think is is goofy, as you mentioned. Well, um, he, I, I was just on his Instagram because I was looking yeah. at the book and I didn't realize he was married to uh, Marina Baccarin or yeah, I don't yeah. Know how to say her last name. I know she. I'm, I I don't know the name, but I know who she's married to. She's been in tons of stuff. I, yeah, I find her unbelievably attractive. So yeah. good for she's good a, for you, uh, Ryan from the OC. Yeah, and look, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I'm like you're like talking about the book. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but have you seen his wife? She's pretty attractive. Um, <laughs> no, but the last thing I'll say to agree with you on the, you know, all the scams happening in the crypto space. And I would say like, I've always been of the opinion there is, you know, obviously I'm the, the most conviction in Bitcoin. Um, I have some Ethereum, but it, I kind of bought it where it didn't understanding as well uh, than I do now. And if it wasn't for taxes, I probably would be selling most of my Ethereum position and, you know, putting that into Bitcoin. Uh, But having said that, I mean, I don't know if we talked about it before, but you know, that's the reason. The reason I I had the blue check mark and I pay for it with Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it now is because (laughs) people would make fake profiles of me and then try to do some crypto spams on, you know, other people. And I think it was one of your buddies or you sent me something where they had my just, cousin. Yeah, your cousin. He's like, why is Simon or Sam? I was with him at the time. Yeah. yeah why it, is he sending ex- me some thought- like some stuff about crypto and stuff? And it's the my- all they did was change the I to an L yeah. on your handle. And you can't, they look the exact same yeah. on Twitter slash X. No, exactly. So even I was confused yeah. too. I was like, we're looking at the handle and it's identical. That's it. So that just goes to show that Ben does have a point there where it was it was rampant. I think it still is, but it's not as successful because people just don't have that much money now to, to put in that and stimulus or, checks or and they, stuff like that. You know, that whole, you know, song and dance scam wise kind of played out. Yeah, but I mean, look, I think it's um, I think there's some good parts in the book. Obviously, take it for what it is if you listen to it. Uh, but there's, um, I think there's some really good. There's some not so good, like I mentioned. But uh, I was, you know, 
it was a good listen. I mean, for a lot of the parts, I I cringed a little at times, but there was some really interesting. I mean, the interview with SBF, the way he describes it is, I mean, it definitely sounds like SBF. I'll just say that. <laughs> um, do you watch the guy on YouTube, Coffeezilla? Oh yeah, I watch. Uh, yeah, he like uh, calls out and calls out the crypto scammers, uh, among other scammers, mm-hmm. but a lot of crypto. I love that style of content. Like I, I, I think that there is a special place in you know where for these kinds of people, right? Like scamming people for like, I find that so much worse than like traditional crime in terms of like sight levels of psychopath level that you have to be to scam people of like their hard earned money um, and take advantage of them. To me, that's like, a 10 out of 10 on the socio psychopath level compared to like, like actual, like traditional crimes that people go to jail for. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, uh, like for anyone who listens to it, just when you get to the section about the uh, grandfather who takes his own life, I mean, the son goes over, is able to access it like his dad's email after he passed away. So the son of the, you know, the grandfather. So, he looks at the last email interactions and the last one is just basically the grandfather pleading to who was scamming him and that, you know, like he's in ruins and all that and like, please help me. And, you know, implying that he'll take his own life. And the response you get is bye. Oh, yeah. That just kind of goes to show. And that really was gut wrenching. Like I, you know, it kind of hit me in my stomach. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's like I, I don't want to say that's a good part of the book, but I mean, I think it brings home the point that a lot of people were negatively impacted by what's happening. But again, I think we have to remember too, there was a lot of crap happening on the public markets too, um, and there still is. There still is, and people to being this scammed, day to this second right now, companies lying to people. I mean, you hear about frauds in the financial system. I think UBS just got slapped with like a one point four billion dollar fine for, I think it was related to like uh, money laundering or something like that. So it's not like, yeah. you know, I I think it's very easy to pour on. Look no further than the Toronto Stock Venture Exchange. Yeah, <laughs> pump and dump. They should just rename it to the pump and dump yeah, exchange. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think we've gone on long enough about this, but uh, there's definitely, I think there's good and bad. I think I'll leave it at that. Uh, feel free to listen to it, make your own opinion, but um, hopefully I did a balanced view of it. I don't know why, but I I really love the content of like getting scammers, like uh, like scammer payback on YouTube or CoffeeZilla, like kind of bringing to light because no one is, the government is not treating these people as regular criminals. I mean, how long has the issue of like white collar criminals not been dealt with the same way, you know, someone smokes a joint, goes to jail for 10 years in the US. Like it's never made any sense to most people's brains. And like, you know, people are like really into true crime. I eat up these like documentaries. You know, we've talked about so many yeah. of them on the on the, on Netflix and stuff. I think for the crime, I I mean, obviously, it's probably a lack of resources and desire, and obviously, there's could be a lot of reasons. But at the same time, too, for a lot of regular people thinking about it, it's harder to. 
there's not that direct correlation, right? If you go and steal a convenience store at gunpoint, like, you know what you're doing. Like, if the impact of your actions is right there. Whereas, you know, what Bernie Madoff did or whatever, right? Uh, people took their own lives, but some a lot of people don't, you know, know that that's actually as a result of what the white-collar crime did. And I think that's probably yeah. one of the big issues is there's not that direct correlation there is indirectly, and obviously the, it's probably the main reason, but there's not that immediate correlation where you commit a murder, for example. I mean, you know, you shot the gun, the person's dead. Like, that's the action-reaction, whereas there's a different... It's very easy to understand yeah, exactly. versus a very complex yeah. mastermind. That's uh, it. The consequences you know, are strings. as severe, if not more, but they're not, you know, as direct, I would say, yeah. It's not as blatant. Yeah, exactly. Even though it's even though stringing together all of those actions, it makes it obvious. Is yeah. even more blatant. Yeah, because you you can't you. It's not just oh one slip up. It's like years and years and years of 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 lying and defrauding and the burning the, all those guys who used to do like uh, we'll say Wall Street crime. If any SEC regulator was in the room, you know they would just put the the thermostat in the meeting room at like. 12 degrees celsius <laughs> it would just like the interns and like everyone would just freeze and then they'd get the heck out of there you know who's gonna do an investigation in your office at, in the boardroom and it's like 13 degrees celsius you're like frigid yeah that was just such a classic maneuver they would do oh boy this stuff is fascinating. Well, thanks for uh, you know the review. I, I think that that's a balanced take, and it, it and it shows the kind of guy that you are. That you would, you know, you're obviously uh, very bullish on Bitcoin, and yeah, and I, I respect it too. And and read read some counter viewpoints uh, and took them took them seriously. So that's uh, Simo, um episode three hundred. Yeah, maybe three hundred one. You won't know 301, for sure. <laughs> three hundred with an asterisk. Yeah. Pat yourself on the back. Thanks for everyone for listening to the show, the pod. We really appreciate you. We're, we're here grinding this this pod out. Apologies that the, the previous week we were, uh, I, I don't say we, I was MIA, but I'm back, baby. I'm so back. We're so back. Uh, and the show goes on here. So uh, we are here Mondays and Thursdays. If you have not checked out finchat.io, it is the, the de facto chat GPT for finance tool that me and my team built. It is so cool. And there's 60,000 companies loaded on it now. And if you're trying to do quick research or quick summaries of conference calls, earnings reports, KPIs, businesses, if you're just like, yo, what does this company do? It does a pretty good job. Because I have that question a lot with certain software companies. Splunk, Datadog, all these like cloud companies. Dude, what do they do? I have no idea. The cloud. That's it. <laughs> the, yeah, it's just in the cloud. It's in the it's cloud. It's in the cloud. It's in the cloud. Don't ask any questions. It's in the cloud. Um, it's really good at helping. And you can even be like, hey, explain it like I'm like five. Make it very simple. And it, it does a pretty good job. So go ahead and check that out. That is at finchat.io. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.